All right, um, today's message is the third in a series on the book of Colossians. Wonderful book, wonderful book. And so far we have seen that Paul wrote this, his letter to the new church in Colossae in response to a significant uh, threat from a group of people who would become known as the Gnostics. And just a reminder about what the Gnostics believe. Um, they thought that salvation is obtained through secret knowledge, um, whereas Paul insisted that salvation came through faith. So Gnostics, secret knowledge. Paul said, no, it comes through faith in Jesus. And in our modern world, I think Gnosticism has morphed um, into salvation through reason. We think science and technology... Uh, will give us all the answers we need and, um, and that will be our salvation. Um, and on the face of it, reason would appear to be a great quality to base society on and to be fair, reason, um, being able to figure stuff out, that has brought a lot of blessing uh, to us, uh, particularly in, in, medical, in the medical world, isn't it? Um, in the hospitals, wonderful technology, um, new electric cars and cell phones and what have you. But it's fascinating to me that as Western civilization has decoupled reason from faith in Jesus, we're starting to see some very unreasonable conclusions starting to come forward. One of such uh, ideas is, we mentioned it before, biological sex is a social construct. That's bananas. And that came out from placing reason above faith in Jesus. Another is, is the whole critical race theory, which is, um, I think is quite unreasonable. Uh, and, and this belief is that race is a social construct that is not biologically grounded and natural, which advances the interest of white people at the expense of people of colour. So that's cr- critical race theory in a nutshell. So again... I don't think that's a reasonable idea, but it's come out of placing reason above faith in Jesus. And despite having admirable intentions, both of these ideas, it seems to me that the fruit of such notions simply flip the outcomes from those who were considered to be oppressed and those who were considered to be privileged. And we're starting to see more of that, and that's, that's not going to end well. I don't think that's going to end well. And uh, an example is um, one of my friends told me that her mother, who had, who's been a Christian all her, all her life, is struggling to cope with the fact that when she was growing up, and it's the same with me, I was told that I was goody good because I was I was trying to obey the precepts of Christianity, so I was a goody good. Whereas, you know, um, when I was young, everyone was trying to throw off the shackles. Now, from what I read on social media, I'm a horrible and evil bigot. And I haven't changed. And that's the same with with my friend's mother. She's struggling to cope with the fact that because she disagrees with certain ways of living, uh, how people choose to live their lives, then you're an evil bigot. So that's, (laughs) that's what happens, I think, when we place reason above faith and we decouple it from um, salvation through faith. So now more than ever, we need to be clear in our understanding of the message of Jesus, the gospel of grace, 
and to stand firm in that faith despite what other people think of us. And Sarah kind of covered this last week about our vaccine against Gnosticism or these, these new ideas. And the first one is to embed ourselves in Scripture. We, we need to know, and that's the benefit of going through um, books like Colossians and, and, and Genesis before that, that we've done, a wonderful um, process of um, being, beginning to understand these, uh, the Scripture more. So that's the first one, embed yourself in Scripture. Realise that Jesus is the only source of wisdom and that his gospel is the only true gospel. Number three, it's okay to wrestle. We're not going to understand everything in the Scriptures, we, we'll, um, but we need, I think we need to treat them as though they are the authority upon us. So number three, it's okay to wrestle. And number four, to live into the fullness of what Christ has for us here and now. And I'm going to unpack that idea a bit more through this, um, through this scripture today. Particularly, Paul talked to the Colossians in our passage today about resisting pressure that was coming to bear on them. And we're going to see what lessons we can learn from what he said because the pressure is coming to bear on us too, isn't it? It's, it's beginning to be super unpopular. Uh, some of the ideas that we have held to be true all our lives and suddenly these ideas that um, there are right ways to please God in living your lives that's, that's not an acceptable idea anymore so let's get into our reading today um, we start off with this wonderful passage when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is a fantastic piece of scripture. And I want to liken it to when I, first, uh, when I got my first mortgage. And I went to the bank, and I said, would you give me some money because I want to buy a house and it was about $90,000 at the time which I thought was a colossal amount of money. It's a bit of a, bit of a joke these days. Um, so I signed some documents that said I would pay back the money that I was borrowing. And from that on, from that time on, there was a legal certificate of debt that said I was responsible for paying that money back. So in the same way, there's a spiritual certificate of indebtedness over each one of us. And this spiritual um, certificate listed, or lists, or in our case listed, used to, all the rules that we fail to follow. So there's the law, the, God, the, the, the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and all those rules that we fail to follow, someone has been jotting them all down. And it's, it's really interesting to read the King James Version of verse 14. And it says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it away, nailing it to his cross. Handwriting. What's handwriting? And someone got a pen and wrote it down. Now, I don't think this is... This is not a, there's not a literal piece of paper floating around in heaven with our name on it, listing all of our failures. But... The point is, this is a metaphor, right? This is a, this is a picture of something that's happened. Handwriting is a personal term. So someone's taken the interest in each one of us and wrote down all of our failures. 
Who is the someone? Well, I think it's the devil. In Revelation 12.10, we read, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. The accuser. How does he accuse? He points to God's law and say, Look, there's your law, God. That's what you gave. Graham, he's failed that, that, that. Oh, he's just done that, down there, that. And he's written it all down. So the devil is the one who writes down all our transgressions against God's law and was accusing us to God. What has God done with my certificate of death, with your debt, or with your certificate of debt, when we take on Christ, when we accept Christ into our hearts? What has God done? He's taken it away and he's nailed it to the cross. What does that mean? It's paid. It's all paid. You're all good. You don't owe anything anymore. That's good news. That's really good news. Right? We can live free. We don't have to fear God anymore. Why? Because our certificate of debt has been wiped out. It's gone. Wonderful, wonderful news. Now note, it's one certificate. Of, it's a certificate. Right? There's only one certificate. There's not like, God, now this one to the cross. Oh, there's another one from Graham here. Oh, okay. Oh, there's another one. Oh, okay. See, I thought forgiveness only applied to what I'd done up to the present point in time. And if I sinned again in the future, there was a problem. I was, I was indebted to, to God again. This says there's one certificate. And I listed all of my failures. And that one certificate has been nailed to the cross. It's done. So all my sins, my past, my present, my future sins, all taken care of. Same goes for you. Wonderful, wonderful news. That's because of what Jesus did. God has cancelled each one of our certificates of debt. Now by cancelling our debt, it says that God has disarmed the powers and authorities. Why has he disarmed them? Because they've got nothing to accuse us with anymore. They say, oh, Graham's failed. Yeah, it's paid. Graham did that. Yeah, it's paid. It's paid. No more accusing. I'm good. They can only accuse us when we don't believe that all of our debt has been paid. If we don't believe, if we, if we continue to believe that our sin is a problem with God, well, it's like, oh, my, my certificate of debt hasn't been paid. This is why it's really important to believe this. I grew up being told that sin separates us from God. So because I always was sinning, I felt separated from God. And I felt that God wasn't pleased with me. God was punishing me whenever something bad went wrong in my life. That couldn't be further from the truth. And it's right here. My certificate of debt has been done away with. Gone. And yours has too, if you've given your heart to the Lord. Can you say the words, God is pleased with me? Okay, let's just, I'd like you all to bow your heads, close your eyes, and I want you to be conscious of your feelings, of what your heart says when you say these words. Now say these words, God is pleased with me. Okay, now, I hope your spirit was liberated 
when you said that. When your spirit could agree with those words. A great sense of peace and joy came upon you when you said those words. If, you can't, if that didn't happen, if your spirit spat that out and said, nah, nah, God's not pleased with me, then you don't believe that your certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross. Okay? And that's uh, something that I'd really like you to get into, to understand, because you don't have to live with that. You can live free from, your, from the condemnation of your sin. It is your right as a child of God to say God is pleased with me. Because God said that about Jesus. And we are in Jesus. And therefore, God says that about us. If we are in Jesus, we get what everything that Jesus won for us. Include, God is pleased with me. This is my own dear son with whom I am well pleased. Okay? So that is our right. That is our, our inheritance to, to be ours. Don't live as though that's not true. Because you're denying what Jesus won for you. Don't do that. Receive that wonderful word. God is pleased with me. There's only one certificate of debt being wiped out. You and God are all good. Wonderful, wonderful news. So where does Paul go from here? Therefore do not let anyone judge you about what you eat and drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What does that mean? If someone says, if you drink that, you're going to go to hell. If someone says, if you don't worship God on a certain day, you're going to go to hell. Not true. Rubbish. Rubbish. I remember when I, I was, I was in a centre place and I came out <clears throat> and a guy came up to me and, and he said, if I was a Christian, I said, yes. And he said, do you speak in tongues? And I said, no. And he said, oh, you're not saved then. Rubbish. Rubbish. That's what... Paul is talking about here. If we allow anything to dilute the gospel, if we try and add any extra requirements to what Jesus has done, we corrupt the gospel for us. The gospel isn't corrupted. It doesn't change the way that God looks at us. But we corrupt it for ourselves. And we live with the result of that. Now I was quite stirred up after that conversation. But fortunately, I knew enough of the scriptures to say, no, that's rubbish. I know it's rubbish. <clears throat> so the Gnostics believed that matter was bad and therefore the body was evil and only the spirit was good. And they believed in a strict separation of the two. Spirit was good, matter, my body, bad. And this is a fundamental disagreement, or one of them, between Gnosticism and Christianity. Christianity says all the ways of humanity are spiritual. The problem is the human heart. We, we have a right to ourselves and we refuse to give it up. And that's sin. That's sin. Everything else comes out of that. And, and sometimes we forget that when the Bible talks about these kind of things, we think, oh, that's because that's sexual sin or it's, it's this sin. No, primarily it's, we're not giving up the right to ourselves. We're not surrendering to God. That's sin. 
But it also means that because each of us have a human heart, we need to be careful when we stand for the truth that we don't uh, consider ourselves to be superior and others evil. We're all in the same boat together. This is, this is the gospel restraining our, our natural pride <coughs> and keeping us in a place of humility. <coughs> now, because Gnosticism, Gnosticism doesn't admit that we can be spiritually in error, the human pride has no check. And it's interesting to see later on that Paul talks about... Um, Pride. Human commands and teach. False humility. False humility. That's false humility. What's false humility? Pretending to be humble when you're not. Now, these early Gnostics, they kind of had two extremes. Some Gnostics um, thought that uh, because the body was evil, you had, to, you had to be really harsh with your body. And treat it severely. And so a lot of them were ascetics. So, so they were really into self-denial. You're not allowed to do that. not allowed to do that. And we can see that here. Religious festival, new moon. So you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. Why? Because the, um, the flesh, the, our, our material, the material world is evil. But others said, since the flesh was evil, and they had already attained this higher knowledge... They could do anything they wanted in the body. So there are these two extremes. But it looks like the early version of Gnosticism that the Colossians face was more the self-denial version, harsh treatment of the body. And it looks like they borrowed a bit from Judaism because it talks about the Sabbath. That's, a, that's, a, that's an Israelite, it's a, a Jewish concept, isn't it? And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by these things. And the word judge in the Greek means those who act the part of judges or arbiters in matters of common life or pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. In other words, don't let yourself be placed under the judgment of those who say you need to do certain things or otherwise you won't be saved. And that example I gave of speaking in tongues was a, was a classic. If I allowed myself to, to be placed under that person's judgment, I would have not only have um, doubted my salvation, I would have placed myself under his control. And I would, have, I would be in the process of losing connection with Christ because that's not what the reality is. <clears throat> but I guess more subtle than that too. I think as Christians we need to watch out for uh, whenever you see the, a title like um, The Secret to, the, the secret to um, Winning in the Victorious Life or something like that. Here's the secret of the life you've always dreamed. Right? That's an example of, I think, it's, it's tending towards Gnosticism, which is secret knowledge, right? You don't know this, but I'm telling you the secret knowledge. And if you buy this book, you too will receive the secret knowledge. So just be, be aware. I'm not saying don't buy books. Just don't place yourself under someone's judgment like that. Don't, don't think that there's a secret source of knowledge that unless you buy into, you're not going to be saved and you're not going to have the blessings of the Lord upon your life. It's Christ. That's all we need. 
So don't let anyone start writing out a new certificate of debt for you. Don't mix anything with the gospel. What Jesus has done is enough and cannot be added to. But there's more, I think. Not, not so much within Christianity, but outside of Christianity. And this is what I would say is a modern version of Gnostic self-denial <coughs> that has a new definition of salvation. And I want to just briefly mention this here. So remember, ancient Gnosticism was seen as um, salvation was escaping this world and going to the perfect place. Now we can see that that element of Gnosticism in our modern world with its emphasis on perfection, right? We idolise men and women with perfect bodies. It's everywhere, everywhere we go. Although it looks like it's slightly starting to change now, but essentially we idolise people with perfect bodies. Perfect houses. How many housing shows are there on? TV. Look at my perfect house with its view of the Mediterranean. The sun glistening down. It's all perfect and wonderful. We have perfect jobs. Perfect life. Everything's got to be perfect. I think this is a modern expression of Gnosticism. The perfect world. Creating within this our material reality this perfect world. But the problem is that an increasing number of uh, people claim to be atheists, so they wouldn't acknowledge there's an, a separate world. So they wouldn't buy into ancient Gnosticism. So modern Gnosticism, in addition to this trying to create everything perfect in our lives and getting really upset when it doesn't get perfect, there's another version of salvation which seems to me to, de to be defined as being thought of as a nice person by the majority of people. Being thought of as a nice person by the majority of people. A nice person always affirms how others want to live. Except when you come across people that believe that there are certain forms of behaviour that are wrong, in which case you can hate them and yell at them and call them all sorts of nasty names. That's the modern version, I think, of salvation. You've got to be nice. You've got to be tolerant. And we can see that on social media. <laughs> it's alarming. All you have to do if you find someone that, whose opinion you disagree with, if you're progressive, if you like, is call them a hate-filled bigot and job done. You don't have to engage in their ideas. You don't have to listen to what they're saying. You just lay, slap a label on them and then job done. And everyone else piles in to hate them. There's plenty of examples I'm sure you're aware of. To have that happen... For us, to be hated on social media is the end of the world, isn't it? Many public figures walk in fear of the Twitter mob these days in case they put a step wrong and the Twitter mob jumps on them and calls them a bigot or some other, <coughs> some other nasty term. <coughs> and we talk about being cancelled. Well, that's, that's what being cancelled means. You get a label slapped on you and you're wiped out and you don't exist anymore. And to be fair, it's pretty horrible to have lots of people posting nasty comments on something you've posted. And I remember a, a couple of years ago, Sarah had posted something on abortion, I think it was, which I thought was quite reasonable. But man, some of the responses she got were really <laughs> over the top, I thought, and, and quite nasty. And, and some of these people um, were supposedly Christians. 
So she ended up taking the post down because it was creating so much. Well, she didn't need to deal with all that rubbish. Hey. Yeah, it's quite alarming. So the trouble with this idea is that anyone is just one step away from becoming an evil bigot. And so that makes you walk on eggshells, doesn't it? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh, I must be careful not to say that. <clears throat> That's just another form of salvation by works. And it creates massive anxiety and stress. And I don't blame people for not engaging with social media. <clears throat> and I think this fear that we experience about what people will think if we said what we really believe is an example of what Paul says here about not letting ourselves be judged. This is, I think this is a really big issue, which is why I'm, I want to um, spend some time on it. <clears throat> now, don't hear me say that we should all rush out and post things on Facebook or Twitter that we know are going to cause an uproar. So someone once said to me, no one is going to change their mind based on a Facebook post. And I think that's virtually true all the time. There might be a few examples, but you think about your own engagement with Facebook and, and Twitter. Do you change your mind, or do you just get upset with what other people have written? For me, I, I tend to just get annoyed with what, what other people have written. I don't actually change my... I don't get my mind changed. I just think, oh, bro, come on. So I think let's use social media for what it's good for. Cat videos, and maybe communicating with our family or communicating events and things like that. And I think these days we need to keep contentious issues for face-to-face -face conversations with people that we have developed a relationship with. Because someone who knows you is not going to call you a hate, a, a, an evil bigot. Because they know you're not. And you might have a better chance of engaging and, and sharing the truth of the gospel with them. But what I am saying, I think it's really important in this passage to not let ourselves be placed under the judgment of the mob. Or, or even if, if someone slaps, tries to slap a label on it, you say no. In your heart, you say no. It doesn't mean that we don't maybe examine our beliefs and, and, and maybe we become conscious of um, some attitudes which aren't good or not Christ-like and we can, we can engage with them and get rid of them. But to just have a blanket label slapped on us I don't think, that, that's what Paul's saying, is don't let yourself be judged. Don't let yourself be judged. <clears throat> and one way that I do this is by praying to God. I, I, I take myself away into my little cave in my room and I look at the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, that my worth is not determined by what this person thinks about me or says about me. My worth is based on what you think of me and you're crazy about me. And man, my heart just responds to that. Prayers like that set me free from being condemned by what other people think of me. And sometimes, I'm, you know, in the early days of my marriage, sometimes I even had to do that because Sarah, you know, expressed some disappointment with me every now and again. And I got hurt because I thought I was the man. I thought I was the perfect husband. And when she expressed some disappointment in me, I, I got all puppy. <laughs> and I realised 
I was, a, I, was a, I was allowing my identity to be impacted by what she said. I had, I had to go away to my roots. Lord, thank you that I'm not what Sarah thinks about me. I'm, I'm what you think about me. Oh, yeah. oh relief. <laughs> it, it, it's not an easy process. And we have to be attentive to our hearts. Very attentive to our hearts. This is what I think the scripture means about guarding your hearts. We need to be attentive to our, what am I feeling? Where am I get, what am I, you know, what am I being influenced by? Is that influence a good influence? No, it's not. Right. Take action in prayer. Take action then and there. So as we hold fast to the truth of the gospel and insist that there's a better way to live and that Jesus is the most important thing in life, it's not relationships or money or gender or anything like that, if, we, if we're going to insist on that, then we're going to have to be strong and not allowing ourselves to be judged. So let's start practicing now and learning, learn to separate our identity from the opinions of others. And I think, I, I know when I've, I've, well I know I've still got work to do because I still get defensive. If, I have a, if I'm discussing something with someone, I still find myself getting defensive. And I'm, st- I'm thinking about what I'm going to say before they've even finished saying. So I'm not really listening to what they say. I'm, I'm defensive. And, I, and that's an example of I'm being impacted by their opinion of me. So I need more work to do to separate that. So I can not be threatened by what they think. That's the ideal. And this leads us to the meaning of love. What is love? I think a critical failure of modern Gnosticism is that it equates niceness with love. If you love someone, you're nice to them. Is that true? What happens if you went to the doctor and the doctor said something nice to you and you say you're a smoker and you went to the doctor and you're coughing up grey phlegm and you've got pain in your lungs and the doctor said, hey, look, smoking's fine. It's okay. You have some painkillers. You'll be right. Is that- that's a doctor being nice. Right? Is that what we want a doctor to do? No. Uh, you might be getting lung cancer if you keep that up. But, you know, and, and so the scripture says to speak the truth in love. And the, I think part of our problem historically as Christians is that we haven't spoken in love. And I think what that means, the definition of in love, we ultimately desire the best of the person that we're speaking to. And often, we, we're so mad at them, because we're so threatened by what they're saying, we don't des- we're desiring the worst for them in that moment. And speaking the truth in love is like, I desire the best for you, and therefore I'm going to gently express the truth to you, which is this. And if they throw up their hands in horror and, and scream and yell at us, well, I'm very sorry. But I'm telling you that because I love you. I desire the best for you. So I want to touch on, explore this idea further of living free in Jesus. You know, we've talked about being free from the opinions of others. That's an example of being free in Jesus. I think we'd all agree... That if we were free from the opinions of others, if we, if we weren't scared about what other people thought, our lives would be better. 
we would have more peace, we would have more joy, we'd have less anxiety, less stress. So let's explore this idea more. How do we do this? Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now set your minds. Set your, set your minds in verse 2. The Greek word speaks of seeking. Seeking until you find it. Seek. So Paul is saying there's, a, there's another dimension of reality, a, a spiritual dimension. And in this reality, Christ dwells and reigns. And when we uh, accept Christ, our true life is hidden with him. That's what it says. For you died, our old life, our old insistence on our right to ourselves has died, and now our lives are hidden with Christ and God. Now it's fascinating to me how close Gnosticism is to Christianity, and yet how far away it is. Gnosticism said there's a perfect world somewhere, and we need secret knowledge to escape from this terrible, inferior world so that we can get to the perfect world. Christianity says, yes, there is a perfect world where Christ reigns, but we need to live out of the reality of that world while we're in this world. We use that reality becomes our ultimate reality, and that when we live out of that reality in this world, then we will be living a life that glorifies the Lord. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not a simple, well, it's a simple thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. Okay, so Paul is saying this, our true life is hidden with Christ and God and we're to live that out while we're in this world. And in doing that, we live with this anticipation that one day <coughs> God will bring heaven to earth and join these worlds together. And this imperfect world will be renewed. And God will bring an end to pain and suffering, tears and separation and death. And that's what he says in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It's going to be a glorious, glorious day. When all the pain of this world will be wiped away and it will be renewed. It will still be this world. God will bring heaven to earth. Remember in Revelation, the, the, the heavenly city comes out. Down, down, and on to earth. Heaven comes to earth. What a wonderful... This, this, this world might be imperfect now, but it's not a world that, deserves to, that is going to be flushed away and, and being escaped from, like the Gnostics say. So how do we live out this reality of heaven while we're still here on earth? How do we do that? Paul says to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. Why seated? What's seated got to do with it? Well, in the, in the days of old when kings went to war, when they had won a great victory, they sat down to rule. They sat down on their throne. So that means Christ has won the victory and he's seated in his heavenly throne. And we are hidden in him. That's what it says. Our lives are hidden with Christ. That means we are to live out the victory of what Christ has done. 
We are to live as though everything he won is ours. And, then, and that, the certificate of debt that we started with, that's an example of it. Right? That's, that takes faith to believe that all my certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross, it's been done away with, and I live out of that reality in this world. Right? So that's, what he's talk- that's an example of what he's talking about. Set your hearts and minds on the reality where Christ is, and he's won the victory, and out of that reality, I will live. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul writes, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. So we are seated with Christ. So everything that Christ has won for us is ours, because we are in him. So this is the true reality, and we are to live out that reality in this world. So what have we covered today? I think there are four main points. Number one, live as though all your sins are forgiven. Because they have. They have. When we accept Jesus, God cancels our certificate of debt by nailing it to the cross. And our record of sin is cleared. Past, present and future, we are forgiven. Number one, live as though all your sins have been forgiven. Don't be scared of God. Go to God in your mess. Involve God where you are. If you don't, how on earth are you going to receive strength and his help in your time of need? Live out of the reality that all your sins have been forgiven. Number two, don't allow anyone to place on you additional requirements to be saved. Don't accept it. Jesus is enough. If you're in Christ, job done. It doesn't mean that if you want to fast, fast. If you want to abstain from certain food and drink, go for it. But it's not necessary for salvation. What Christ is and what he has done for us is enough for salvation. <clears throat> we need no extra mediators or taboos or secret keys. Okay, so number two, don't accept anything as additional to salvation. Number three, as we hold fast to the truths of the gospel, we're going to come under increasing pressure to conform to the modern ideology that we face. So we're going to have to be strong and not consenting ourselves to be judged by others. So this will take courage. So let's start practicing now separating our identity from the opinions of others. And if you find yourself um, with an opportunity when you're talking to someone you know well about a contentious issue, just gently try it and see how you go. And if you suddenly find yourself getting super mad and upset, then you'll know you've got a bit of work to do in separating your identity from what they say. If you can engage with someone without getting angry, and there's some people that do this incredibly well, and I really admire them, then that's where we want to be. We want to be able to engage without getting all upset and all pippy and, and getting all threatened. So third, separate identity from, our, from the opinions of others so that we can engage and represent Christ well. <clears throat> Number four, and probably most importantly, if our lives are now hidden with Christ and God <clears throat> and we are victors with Christ and everything Jesus won is ours, what would our lives look like if we truly lived out of this reality? Would we be threatened by the opinions of others if Jesus said we belong to him? Would we? I don't think so. 
Would we believe that God was punishing us when life didn't work out like we'd hoped? If God has cancelled our certificate of debt, why would God be punishing us? Would we judge ourselves for not being successful enough in our work, in our relationships, in our ministries, if our measure of success was to be in Christ? This is The measure of success in the gospel is that you're in Christ. That's it. Everything else flows out of that. So don't allow these other definitions of success to encroach upon that central truth. Don't allow yourselves to be judged. Would we continue to be vulnerable to a sense of inadequacy when we compare what we have with others if our most prized possession was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loved us and gave himself for us? Would we be jealous of someone's Tesla like I was a year or two ago? No. (laughs) Would we struggle to say God is pleased with me and know it to be true? If God said that about his only son and now our lives are in him. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to live out the reality of your victory that you won in our world, in our lives, in our here and now. Lord, I pray for anyone here that hasn't been able to accept that statement, God is pleased with me. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you touch them now, that you would lift from them anything that would cause them to be separated from this truth, Lord, that you are pleased with them because they are in you. Holy Spirit, help us to live out the truth of your victory in our lives and gently bring to our attention those areas in our lives where we're not doing that. Holy Spirit, we know that we cannot do this without your help. So we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We ask for humility to be ours, that we would turn to you and walk in this life of victory that you have won for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible opportunity we have to live a life of peace and joy and freedom in you. We bless your holy name. In Jesus' name. Amen.